It's time for the tactics meeting. Episode 16, Crisis Messaging, with Sam Sacco from Strategy Communications. In this episode, we'll be talking about the purpose of public messaging, becoming a trusted source of information, the news cycle in the digital age, and much, much more, so stick around. If you like podcasts and you're interested in safety, I invite you to try Spot on Safety, hosted by myself, Dan Smiley, and my co-host, Amy Does from iWorkWise. We talk about slips, trips, and falls, confined space entry, Hazwopper, you name it. If it falls under OSHA and safety, we talk about it. It's available on Apple Podcasts. Now let's get to this amazing episode. Sam Sacco, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. So, Sam, before we start off in what is your uh, topic of expertise, crisis communication, can you start by telling us how you got into crisis communication for oil spill response in the first place? A lot of people have a kind of a pivot story for how they went from doing one thing to being in this oil spill crisis communication world. And I do have that pivot story, Dan. Uh, Yeah, it harkens back to the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Obviously, I think everyone remembers the Exxon Valdez incident. I was not involved in that incident. However, the first major spill response to occur after the Exxon Valdez incident, I was involved. And that was uh, a BP response off of the coast of Huntington Beach, California, called the American Trader Incident. And uh, we were brought in to assist BP and uh, uh, we, we helped BP. And at that time, there wasn't what is, we all know now of as unified command. That was still in its morphing stages. Legislation had been passed, uh, the uh, OPA Act of uh, 1990, uh, OPA-90, And uh, yet it hadn't been fully implemented. So we were kind of in this uh, middle ground area to where we represented BP, but we did have a very close working relationship with both the US Coast Guard and the state of California, uh, which at that time was California Fish and Game. And, And so we did work together, we coordinated together, but we did not come together in one command post. Um, And I only bring that up uh, because uh, so much has changed since those days, but that, uh, but that pivot that that moment when we did uh, go to work for BP was my very first oil spill response and it changed my life it's uh, I began to see that there was a whole niche area a whole area separated out there from the rest of the public affairs world that focused on oil spill response. And so that's kind of my uh, little story of how I uh, got from being a general public affairs practitioner to an oil spill communications response specialist. So how would you describe uh, that earlier part of your career in the general communications sphere? I would say it was exciting times because while we were responding and we all took it seriously, we were also kind of inventing a lot of the things that are going on today. 
And uh, so from a communication standpoint, some of the things we were doing uh, were, were kind of uh, being tried for the first time, uh, but hadn't become part of the regular practice like some of the things that we do now are. And uh, uh, giving examples of uh, how we uh, talked very much about the cooperation and teaming strategy that was underway, even though there really wasn't this thing called unified command yet, we knew that teaming message was a very important message, that it couldn't be just BP by itself out there responding, that people needed to understand there was a team of people that included agencies that they knew and trusted, like the US Coast Guard, like the California Department of Fish and Game, like NOAA, et cetera, et cetera. And so again, uh, uh, that, that, that became very important in the way we approached things. Uh, and of course, uh, being able to articulate what it was we were doing operationally and communicate that to the world also was, was very important. That's not to say we invented that, but we understood its importance. That in order to uh, get credit for a job well done, you needed to explain what it was you were doing. Otherwise, no matter how good your operational response was, uh, it would go by the wayside because people would assume nothing was being done. So again, uh, that 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 was that was some of the uh, key things that were happening back then, and again, uh, just a, a great working relationship too with both the U.S. Coast Guard and State of California on that uh, particular incident. Well, Sam, you spoken to this a little bit already, but can you tell us about crisis communication and its importance in the emergency response process? Yeah, and I'm going to kind of go back to what I already mentioned, because it is just so important. Uh, to me, there are two critical elements to effective uh, uh, emergency response. And, uh, and, and of course, one of those components is the operational side of it. You have to mount a legitimate, viable operational response. Uh, if you don't, You'll be you'll be dead in the water. No matter how good your communications are, uh, if you're not doing anything to truly respond, you will be found out, and uh, you will uh, never get credit for doing the right thing. But secondly, and I mentioned this before, you have to have a good communications component to your emergency response uh, operation in order to get credit for doing the job. And I, I, I give some examples like key objectives that drive the operational response, such as safety of people, safety of responders, and other key objectives like um, uh, minimizing any long-term damage to the environment. These are all important things and they're driving the operational response. Well, people need to understand that. And that's where the communications component comes in. How are you doing that? How are you protecting the safety of people? How are you minimizing long-term damage to the environment? What steps are you taking to stop the, the leak of the product into the water? These are important 
objectives, and those objectives need to be communicated back to the general public and other key stakeholders, such as media, elected officials, et cetera, so that people know that the steps that need to be taken are being taken. Yes, and we've seen really aggressive, well-coordinated, effective operational responses become a complete failure in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of regulators, in the eyes of politicians, because the responsible party failed to tell a compelling story about their success. So would you say that that is a key component then of crisis communication? Take it up. Uh, and telling that story of how we are effectively responding. Yeah, it, it's critical. It's critical to uh, overall success. And uh, this is certainly not to uh, pick on any particular company, but of course it's a historic case study, the Exxon Valdez incident. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but it was one of the most spectacular oil spill responses in the history of the world. What Exxon did in Alaska was incredible in the way they uh, organized, in the way they uh, put together an operational response, in the way they created uh, new tools uh, that were used to help uh, clean up and, and, and protect uh, uh, oil, uh, oil impact parts of the environment. But there were other factors at play back then, and we didn't have this thing called unified command. And there were uh, some arguments between the company, between state officials, between the Coast Guard. And these, these arguments were, were being aired uh, through the media publicly. So it looked like nothing was being done. It looked like entities were just arguing and disagreeing when in fact the exact opposite was true. So a missed opportunity, yeah. And again, not Exxon's fault. It was just the nature of the beast at that time. And it's why it was imperative that when Congress did act to put together uh, the Oil Spill Oil Pollution Act of 1990, that it created this thing called Unified Command to where all of these entities, whether it was the company and the key agencies that are responsible for oversight would work together. Uh, that doesn't mean, um, uh, Coast Guard's working for the company, it means they would work together on the response to come up with the best ideas and also to eliminate these uh, sidebar arguments, work these details out, and then focus on solution and communicate that to the public uh, as it should be so that people understood what was really happening operationally and that message didn't get lost by the wayside. Well, certainly. Exxon Valdez has become synonymous in the eye of the public as a failure. So less a failure of response and more a failure of crisis communication. Indeed, and again, it's it's the old uh, if you were if you were to give grades, uh, and uh, this goes for all the other entities that were involved uh, uh, in that. Uh, very major response. If you were to give a grade on communications, the grade would be F. 
If you were to give a grade on operational response, the grade would be A. But guess which grade overrides the other? That communications grade needs to be just as high as the operational grade if you want to get credit for doing the job you were supposed to do in that very difficult situation. So Sam, you were putting together a crisis communication program for a client who just experienced uh, an oil spill event, what would separate an effective program from an ineffective one? What road would you go down? Well, I believe that it's imperative that you establish your communications operation as the primary source of information. This has to be the goal and it must be achieved to be successful. And what do I mean by that? You need to be accessible. You need to be accessible to the media, to the general public and other key stakeholders, be they uh, other outside agencies or other elected officials, et cetera, et cetera. You need to be informative. What I mean by that is, is that you have to compile and distribute good usable data that helps stakeholders to understand the steps you were taking to manage and to control the incident. Timeliness of that information is critical too. Your information must be relevant to the news cycle that you're in. Waiting until the next day to explain something important like why a neighborhood was not evacuated, that's not good enough. You gotta have that kind of information out now. Why was a neighborhood not evacuated? Who made those decisions? Were people's safety uh, at stake? You can't mess around with that and wait 24 hours before you begin addressing it. People need to know that kind of information now. So again, timeliness of information is critical. And finally, you have to be responsive. And what I mean by that is, is that this isn't just about giving out information. It's also about identifying stakeholders who are having issues or major concerns and who need help, need help in understanding what their pathways to solution are. You may not have their solution, but you may have the way that they can get to solution. So again, it goes beyond just uh, you know numbers like how much boom have you put out or how many, uh, how many response workers are working. It's also identifying those who need help and how to get their issues and concerns resolved. If you could follow that approach, uh, you're going to establish yourself as the primary source of credible information. And that's a powerful place to be. Uh, that means media, impacted residents, other stakeholders, they're going to start with you first to get their information. They're not going to be going to other sources who may have incorrect information or other sources who may intentionally uh, uh, have an agenda against you and want to negatively affect your response. Again, establish your uh, communications organization as the primary source of credible information. Today, the news cycle is so much faster than it was when either one of us started in this business. I'm not even sure you could call it a cycle anymore. It's just a never-ending uh, line or a, an object traveling at, at light speed. 
what has changed for you in this world when you're dealing with the speed of information processing? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, social media is a whole new factor when it comes to uh, emergency response, crisis communications, et cetera. You have to have a viable social media component. But the thing that I've seen that hangs up most responses is not having uh, a, a, a social media component. Most, most do now. Not having good folks running uh, their uh, 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 regular traditional media response, they're out there. What I see as the big problem nowadays is the approval process on information. It takes too long to approve obvious, uh, important information that needs to get out and, and we get lost in, and you're right, the news cycles now can be five minutes long because of social media as opposed to 12 hours like they once were. But yeah, you've got to have an expedited approval process. And that means you have to have a very close working relationship between those who create and, and uh, pull together the information, the public information operation or the liaison operation, and those who approve the information, the command section of a unified command. If that is not in sync, if it is taking too long to get obvious things uh, approved, then you will not position yourself as the primary source of information. People will start going elsewhere. So again, we have to work on expediting that approval process and making it so that it fits into 2021. We still tend to be drilling and exercising like it's 1999, and that's not gonna cut it in a real response. Yeah, when, I, when I'm looking at news articles and I, I click on a new article on my phone, I mean, it, if it hasn't fully loaded in five seconds, I move on to the next one. I mean, that's, right. I mean, I expect it to just, you know, click along. Yep, uh, yep. The last big uh, drill that I, I did, our, our PIO was very aggressive in coming quickly to the unified command right after the 201 brief without even giving us really an opportunity to go into the initial UC meeting to say what information that's out there can we in the Joint Information Center use to establish ourselves as the primary source of information? What can we say without your direct approval and what needs to come back for unified command uh, buy-off? And I thought that that uh, aggressive action early made all the difference in how the rest of the, the day went. Uh, I, I, I... I would second that uh, notion, uh, and, and it's good that you had a, a good, aggressive uh, public information operation and public information officer who was pushing for that. One of the things, though, even with a good public information officer or liaison officer who's pushing command for timely approval of information, if those commanders have not been trained appropriately that message will fall upon deaf ears. So how do we fix that problem? 
I am a big, big fan of doing joint training that is specialized between incident commanders, deputy incident commanders, and their public information and liaison team to work together in the training uh, uh, environment so that these kinds of issues can be worked out. Also, so the command begins to understand its importance in not only in approving uh, timely information, but also its role in being the face of the response, of having a media role, of having a very critical stakeholder role. They are the face of, of, uh, of the response. So therefore, it is imperative that they have a very close and good working relationship. Too many, too often times in exercises nowadays, that relationship doesn't even start forming until the exercise begins. To me, that should be uh, changed so that these people know each other and have kind of worked with each other in a training environment prior to an exercise. Yeah, that's that's good advice. And I attended a couple of your classes where those groups of people worked together to establish those relationships and it seemed to be pretty darn effective. So aside from that, do you have any other advice for those leading a crisis communication efforts? Yeah, I, I think it's very important that if you're a, a communication specialist and you're in a difficult uh, situation like a uh, oil spill response, Part of your role is that of being a manager of expectations and also an, uh, an understand and have a great understanding of incident potential. And those sound like uh, maybe a lofty uh, uh, technical speak, but let me explain. Uh, when I'm talking about expectation management, we can't be going around creating messages that are based on hope. As we all know, hope is not a strategy. And uh, if, if messages based on hope are, are formulated on day one, it may sound really good. The problem is, is then there's a day two and a day three and all those hope messages uh, fall by the wayside and they, you've now exacerbated your problems because you, you gave too much hope on day one to stuff that did not happen. So again, uh, stay away from hope as a messaging strategy. You also have to be aware of not making promises that you can't keep. And I see this oftentimes in oil spill response when it comes to booming, boom operations. We got 20,000 feet of boom out. We're, we've got more boom out than has ever been seen in this geographical region. And then the natural follow-up question by stakeholders or media are, well, then can you keep the oil off the shoreline? And the answer is always, well, we've got 20,000 feet of boom out there and we're gonna do everything we can to keep it off that shoreline. Well, the problem is, if that's the way you're gonna approach it, you're now not managing expectations. There's a good chance that some of that oil, no matter how much boom you have out there, is gonna make its way past that boom and hit that shoreline. Incident potential is gonna be bigger. It's not just gonna be on water cleanup. There is gonna be shoreline impact. So I, I really try and press people on this time and time again. Don't make promises you can't keep 
talk in terms of the contingencies the way you have them planned. You have a booming strategy on water. And at the same time, you're also setting up a shoreline cleanup strategy just in the event that some of the oil does make its way to shore. Very simple. You can all be told on day one, but for some reason, people only want to focus on the boom they put out and forget about all the other steps that are being taken to protect the shoreline. So those, those are just a couple of uh, things that I, I think people should look out for. And, and, and I would say the other thing too is, is just remember bad news does not age well. And uh, I've seen this happen time and time again. And I, I can give a great example in the Costco Busan incident where the uh, captain of the port who was the federal on-scene coordinator on day one said uh, the amount of oil spilled was about 140 gallons. And he stuck to that messaging all through day one, despite the fact that later in the evening, it was made aware that this thing was as much as 50,000 gallons, 50,000 gallons of uh, 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 bunker sea oil that had flowed into San Francisco Bay. So instead of putting out that new information, that update information, the decision was made to wait until tomorrow to break the bad news. Well, the firestorm that occurred by holding up that news uh, uh, was tremendous. And, and uh, uh, the response paid a price for it. Uh, and ultimately uh, that captain of the port played a, a paid a price as well. Uh, and uh, people can check the history on that. But again, don't hold off on bad news. If there's bad news, get it out there, explain what it is, and then explain how you're trying to solve the problem, uh, despite the fact that the news isn't as good as we had hoped it would be earlier. Well, Sam, speaking of spill volume, this is often an initial place where crisis communication goes off the, the rail. People wanna speculate on how much was spilled. They're asked the question, well, how much oil has been spilled? And they wanna give a number but this, in my experience, is a mistake. How would you address that question in a crisis communication world? How much has been spilled? Yeah, day one, there's a lot of information we don't know. We don't know what caused the incident on day one. We don't know. Uh, uh, sometimes we don't even know if oil is still being released. That is being investigated or assessed. Uh, and so on day one, very seldom will we ever know how much oil has been released. So what do we do? Well, one of the things I always encourage my clients to do is to make sure, one, you're in alignment with the U.S. Coast Guard. Because the last place you ever want to be is giving out one number and the Coast Guard giving out another number. Or you giving out nothing and them giving out something. So how do we get in alignment? Well, that takes uh, communications and you, you've got to talk with the Coast Guard. Uh, there are reporting uh, 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 regulations where a company does need to call in to the Coast Guard and explain uh, what they, how much they think has been released. But all those factors, how do, we, how do we work it? Well, on day one, here's one thing we do know. We have oil where it shouldn't be. Uh, we have oil uh, that 
uh, needs to be cleaned up. We, we have oil in the water and that's a serious situation. Okay, there are times where we can't give a specific number because we don't know yet. But rather than just saying, we don't know, let's talk in terms of how important is this to us. So how much oil is spilled? Right now, we don't know, but I can tell you this, we have oil where it shouldn't be. And it looks like it's a sizable amount. We're taking this very seriously. We've already notified the US Coast Guard. We've notified the state uh, environmental agency and we're working together on going out and assessing not only how much oil has been released, but how best to get it corralled, boomed off and recovered. And that's about the best we can do a lot of times on day one. Now there are certain other areas where the Coast Guard will require some kind of a, uh, uh, a, uh, a worst case. So if you have a tank that's been punctured, what is the maximum uh, amount of oil that's in that tank? Uh, and let's say just for numbers sake, it's 80,000. Let's say it's 80,000 barrels of oil are in this punctured tank. Well, there are some areas uh, where the Coast Guard will require you to say this has a maximum potential of being an 80,000 barrel spill. But in working with the Coast Guard, we can also work on that language and, and, and temper it uh, and, and make it more accurate by saying there, it's an 80,000 uh, barrel tank but we do know the puncture was above the waterline. So that means uh, that only oil up to that point can be released. Exactly how much that is, I can't give you a number, but right now what we're trying to do is get that leak fixed and move all the oil out of that tank into an, an empty tank. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're gonna continue to work with the Coast Guard until we can get an exact amount of oil that's been released. So uh, again, uh, it's uh, day one is tough. You're not gonna have all of the answers, but it's all in how we go about answering. So watch out for the uh, uh, yes or no, or hey, can you give us a number? No, I can't. Let's give some explanation of the process. And that's where the real answer on day one belongs. Well, Sam, here's a what I think is a harder question. One of the objectives of my last worst case drill was the process of approving application of aerial dispersants. And the question came up, what do we now say to the public? How do we address this in the media? Because we are gonna start off really looking like the bad guy by putting this chemical into the water. If I came to you as my public information officer and said, Sam, we're looking at aerial dispersants, be ready to address this, what would you do? How would you go about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'm actually surprised at how many times I've worked with companies who want to go out and own 
the dispersant issue or the in situ burning issue. Let's stick with dispersants for right now. Companies don't make that decision. If you're the Acme oil company and you want to use dispersants, you can propose that you use them, but that decision is made by what's called the regional response team, which is made up of entities like the US Environmental Protection Agency, the US Coast Guard, NOAA, key state environmental agencies, all of these different agencies who have high credibility, who do the analysis on whether or not dispersants are gonna be allowed. They make the final decision on whether or not they can be used. So like I say, if I'm a company, I don't go out and say, we wanna use dispersants uh, and uh, uh, we're pushing to use them. I wanna say that a recommendation has been made to the RRT to use dispersants and that uh, entity is made up and I would name off those agencies and then uh, uh, remind everybody that it is those agencies who will make the decision, not Acme Oil. Well, that is really great advice. Oh, we were in the drill, uh, got hung up on this idea of, of messaging. And it seems like there's an opportunity to have some pre-planning done around that kind of messaging. What would your, would your thoughts be on that? I, I, I'm, I, I encourage all of my clients that I work with to have that message ready to go. Now, does that mean it always uh, uh, shows up when we do exercises? No. <laughs> Every now and then it, it, uh, it does, but uh, just have to go back and keep uh, uh, training people. And a lot of times it has to do with, uh, you have uh, new incident commanders uh, and uh, new FOSCs, federal unseen coordinators who are doing this for a first time. So it's a new rodeo for them. But with some of the old hands, they know, they understand this. And again, there is no reason for a company to go out and put itself on the limb, on a limb, when it in fact is not gonna be the one that makes that decision. But I, I, I can tell you, I've been involved in major responses where I've seen exactly that happen. And uh, I pushed back and, and tried to remind people that it's not your decision to make. It, this decision belongs to both the US government and those key agencies I'd mentioned earlier and uh, whatever state is involved or states uh, that are involved in the uh, uh, environmental aspects of that response. Thank you for that. What do you think about the utility of the press conference in this day of high-speed news cycles? Does it have value? Do we keep doing them? The short answer is yes. Uh, you still do them, but you certainly don't depend on them uh, in between the uh, uh, 10 to 12 hour periods that you might be staging one. And I see this happen way too often in uh, exercises and sometimes even in real events. Media call in, they want information. The response back to them is, well, Unified Command's gonna have a press conference at two o'clock today. Well, it's 9 a.m. right now, that's five hours from now. Uh, do you, can you can you try and get me the information I'm looking for 
No, no, you have to wait for the press conference. No, that is not the way it should be. Uh, a press conference to me serves, it's, it's most important uh, uh, service is, is that it introduces the leadership face-to-face -face of the response. But it is not, it is not the uh, 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 way that media should have its questions answered during the rest of the uh, uh, operational period. It's not the way stakeholders should have their information answered the rest of the operational cycle. Uh, we can't wait for press conferences in this day and age. Social media is a critical, vital tool. We need to be better at using social media to address some of these informational requests that come in earlier. We need to be better at moving that uh, approval process so that basic information like, can we use the top three objectives as message points gets quickly approved. It doesn't go through some big long bureaucratic process between PIO and command before you know, you can go out and say, yes, safety of people is our number one priority or minimizing impact to the environment is a critical factor and part of our response. These are things that we should be able to say within five minutes after our response, if not five seconds. Yeah, I, I did a drill last year uh, here during the COVID world where we had put some effort into having a social media simulation as part of the drill and did some training to make sure that the PIOs and the incident commanders you know, knew how the simulation was going to work and mirrored it as closely as we, we could on, on Twitter. And we had some initial posts already set up in it before the drill began and the response the responsible party, the unified command, was not able to agree or even put up one post in reply to inquiries throughout the entire drill, not one. The drill lasted seven hours. Yeah, no, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's just really crazy. Part of the communication strategy in this day and age is not to have all the answers, but to be part of the conversation. And if you're not part of the conversation, you will then be ignored. And that thing I talked about earlier that establishing yourself as a primary source of credible information, you will fall by the wayside if you're not part of the social media conversation. That doesn't mean you're reacting and responding to every wacko who's posting something, but it is looking at social media strategically and saying, what conversations are important? Who's participating in these conversations? And do we need not only to monitor this conversation, but do we need to be a part of that conversation? And if so, do we also need to have some dialogue with particular people who are in that conversation, not necessarily on the big uh, social media platform, but through direct messaging or through pick up the good old fashioned telephone and call them. These are decisions that need to be made. But lo and behold, I, 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 I agree with you, Dan. I, I see too often uh, that uh, it's hours and hours before the social media uh, function gets the green light to stop just monitoring, but also become proactive. And that's just too long, it's too long. 
my last large response, we called the our contracted PIO uh, within the first 20 minutes of the response. And she, it was midnight, and she didn't leave home or come to a command post, but she got on the phone and she called the Coast Guard's PIO. She called the state. She fired up social media to see what was being posted. And we uh, never really had to engage in those early hours directly, but we, we made sure that the posts that went out from the Coast Guard and from the state had some input and were coordinated. And I thought that was just so successful. How early in the process do you recommend involving the public information officer? At the outset, I think it's probably another uh, failing uh, that occurs uh, too often in, in, in the call out. Some companies are very good at it. Some companies uh, in their initial notif internal notifications, the PIO and those who may fill what's called the liaison office are, are in that initial notification. And, and that to me is, is critical. But I've also worked with other uh, companies and, and clients in the past to where uh, I was their first call and uh, we're already 12 hours into this thing. Uh, you know, so it's kind of like, no, the strategy has to be, I, I mean, I work with some of my clients. I represent some of my clients uh, uh, to media and stakeholders. That's because I've worked with them for years and years and, and I'm kind of part of the family. But they are also aware because I've worked with them over the years to know that they have to have trained people ready to go who fill that PIO role long before they ever even talk to me. Uh, they can't uh, make it so I'm their first contact. They need to have uh, locals within their operations who can fill that gap so that someone like me who comes in later uh, is 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 uh, is morphing into something that's already been established, as opposed to something that is, like I say, twelve hours old and and uh, and nobody's done anything. So yeah, I, I would say you, you want to have it as a, a, a first call, and also you want to make sure you have many people trained who can fill that slot. And and again, the way I've worked with clients over the years operations people are trained to be initial PIOs. They can fill that gap. And they actually, some of them make great PIOs. As a matter of fact, we bring them over with us once we uh, get fully established. Uh, so, because they understand uh, the, the technical aspects, but they also have that ability to explain it if they've gone through good training. So again, yeah, very important. Uh, uh, have your PIO and your uh, liaison people, the people who reach out to the outside world on that initial call list. What is the relationship between the PIO and the liaison officer? We often see people wanting to co-locate them in the same room or almost merge them together, but they fill a similar yet separate role. How do you go about working with the, the two? Yeah, I, I, and I, I don't want to oversimplify, but I'm going to 
because I think it, it will help people understand. <laughs> okay. uh, public information is about media and liaison is about stake agencies and stakeholders. Okay, so <clears throat> both are critical to responding from a communication standpoint to the outside world. It's just that public information focuses on media and the need of the general public to know what's going on from a, a response standpoint. Uh, whereas the liaison operation is uh, making sure that agencies who are not a part of the response are being kept abreast of what is going on, that their uh, questions are being answered. It's also uh, other key stakeholders such as elected officials, uh, liaison is interfacing with them as well, making sure that they and their staff are being kept up to speed on a, on an incident that might may be taking place in their region. It's uh, uh, different uh, NGOs, uh, uh, Sierra Club, environmental organizations. Uh, it's uh, indigenous peoples, uh, tribes, uh, uh, native populations. All of these different key stakeholder groups need some kind of representation within a command post, depending on the geographical uh, region you're, you're operating in. And again, that's where a liaison operation picks up the ball and runs with it. Now, why do we like to co-locate co a public information office and a uh, liaison office? Because they're both about sharing critical, important information. And to have them in sync, working together side by side, will only enhance the communications output uh, that, that, that occurs when you have all of those good minds working together, yet separately, but doing it in a way to where they're coordinated and where they share different responsibilities so that we're not duplicating um, functions such as information gathering. We don't need to have a liaison information gathering function and a joint information center or PIO information gathering function. We only need one. So again, we identify what are the things we only need one of and can we make it work for both of the organizations? Excellent. Well, what about reaching out to the rest of the command posts, the rest of the a response, what other kinds of coordination does the JIC and liaison need from the response? Well, that's where the information is. And that's that's what uh, we, 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 we sometimes have to remind our friends over on the uh, on the command uh, on the floor who are doing all that good hard work, who are who are doing all the planning, who are overseeing all the operations they kind of wonder why we're coming over and bugging them. And, and like I say, we have to remind them sometimes because you're where the information is. Uh, we, we need it. We need to uh, understand what's going on so we can help you get it communicated to the world. And there, there are different parts uh, of, of the rest of the incident command structure that are just so vital to the success of a PIO uh, or a JIC or a liaison office and in, in, you know, for example, within the uh, planning uh, section, you've got uh, environmental uh, specialists in the environmental unit, you've got wildlife experts, you've got people who are uh, uh, experts on fish, 
uh, uh, different uh, grasses that might be jeopardized. All of those things are right there in that planning section. And of course you have situation, the situation unit, which is the compiler of all of the information that's uh, been uh, uh, confirmed. So our folks from uh, uh, both the uh, public information office or JIC uh, and uh, from the liaison office, they are, uh, they have representatives who go out on the floor and if they're doing their job right, they build bridges, they build a good working relationship. And, but again, just to our, our friends over in the planning section and operations section, logistics and, and finance who do get us all that good information, a tip of the hat to you folks. And, and thanks for tolerating us. But uh, uh, what, what you guys provide us is just so critical to not just the success of the PIO and liaison functions, but to the success of the overall operation, because it allows us to tell the story of the response. Sam, what kind of training is available to companies that want to improve their company's crisis communication uh, program prior to going into response? What's available to them? There, there's uh, folks out there who specialize in, in crisis communications and training. I, I happens to be one of my areas of uh, expertise, and I've been doing it for, uh, uh, man, can I say it this way? Decades? I, I think uh, you can I, say it that way. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's out there. But, but I got to tell you, Dan, here's where it starts because I've been contacted in the past by companies who say, oh, we wanna, we wanna build a crisis communications capability. Uh, we, we need crisis communications, can you come and train us? Well, I'll tell you what, if they wanna develop that capability and the request is coming from mid-level management and upper management has no clue about it, it's not gonna work it will not work if it's only being sold from the uh, mid-level management standpoint. A successful, building a successful crisis communications capability has to be uh, an overall part of the crisis management focus of executive management. So it's gotta fit into that piece of the puzzle. So what does that mean? It means they need to buy into it. They need to uh, understand the kind of training that's going to take place. They need to understand the policies that uh, uh, people are going to be trained to. And they have to sign off on those policies. It's one thing to say, we're going to be here as long as it takes. If, if, uh, if, that's, uh, if that's the uh, policy of uh, executive management, but if it's not their policy and in mid-level management, we've been training people to say, we're gonna be here as long as it takes. We're gonna be here until the agencies say the job is done. And then to have management step in and say, no, no, we're gonna be done next week. Or, you know, All I'm saying is you can't have those kinds of conflicts in your messaging. And you can't have the rug pulled out from underneath you when, when, uh, when uh, the, the rubber hits the road and something real is happening. So again, it's just vital that executive management, senior management, and mid-level management are all in sync as you put together your crisis communications capability. And, and that means all people at all levels should have some of the training, maybe a different, uh, 
uh, uh, different uh, uh, focuses with, uh, in the training, but uh, all should go through some sort of training so that they understand what it is you're gonna be providing if and when uh, you become the center of the target. Sam, do you have any last pieces of advice before we close out for today? Yeah, I, I would just say that it, it's very important in, and I may have mentioned this earlier, but you, you just gotta be accessible. You can't put walls in front of people. You can't build a fortress around your response uh, because if that's the perception, uh, day one may not be that bad, but you're gonna hate day two and three if they believe that you're stonewalling information. So what I've found is reporters and, and uh, uh, impacted residents, they'll tolerate something on day one if they're getting some attention, if, if people are reaching it back out to them. But if they start seeing roadblocks in front of them, that's when the anger sets in. And so again, I just highly, I can't overemphasize, be accessible, be timely, get good information out as quickly as possible. And also be informative, get information that they can use or information that, uh, that, that's of interest to them. I, I, I use, I, I always love the number we collected 14,000 gallons of oily water today. What the heck is oily water? Now, what happens is, is that number sometimes becomes 14,000 gallons of oil. Now we have problems. So again, I'm a very big stickler on let's release information that means something. Let's get it out in a timely manner. And let's also look out for people who are looking to us because they have serious issues and concerns and they're just caught like a deer caught in the headlights. They don't know what to do. If we can pull all that together and, and build our organization around that, again, it's, 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 it's never pretty, but you're gonna find that in the end, you're going to have an effective operation that will be judged as successful at the end uh, uh, in, in some people say, well, give me an example of who ultimately was judged successful at the end. Some may argue with me on this, but I'll say right now, BP after Macondo was judged. You go back to the Gulf now, talk to people about how BP came through. Talk to people about uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon 10 years ago. Some people don't even remember it. Some people uh, talk about how uh, they benefited from the uh, uh, different programs that BP presented and put together uh, that, that still are there on the Gulf, helping uh, environmental research, uh, helping communities uh, uh, that had serious tourism uh, 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 impacts as a result of the Gulf spill, but also as a result of Katrina. Uh, so again, uh, I, I really look at BP and the commitment they made uh, and, and where they are now compared to where they were 10 years ago. And I'll tell you one thing, I would hate to be the next company that spilled oil in the Gulf 
uh, the uh, size of a deep uh, uh, size of a deep water horizon spill because they're going to be held to the standard that BP set back in 2010 and 2011. Yeah, that's a pretty high bar. To uh, and it almost led to their ruin, but they're back. Their stock is up. They're looking great. They're back. Yes. Well, Sam Sacco from Strategy Communications. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program and share your experience with us. Dan, it was a pleasure talking with you and you know how much respect I have for you and your knowledge and uh, understanding of uh, the incident command system and the work that you've done there and also uh, just your ability as a, as a teacher uh, and, a, and an exercise drill uh, uh, leader. So again, always a pleasure working with you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for joining us for the tactics meeting. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please help us spread the word. Send a link to a friend. Make a post on Facebook. Send a tweet. Do whatever else people do on the internet to, to spread the word. You'd be doing me a great favor. Hopefully, we would provide good information to your friends and colleagues. If you have an idea for a topic or you'd like to be a guest on the Tactics Meeting, you can email me. My email address is dansmiley at mac.